It has been said that repetition is the mother of learning. I don't know who originally said that, how long that saying goes back. There is a kernel of truth to it. And I would certainly say that the author of the magnificent book of Hebrews uh, heeded that at some level. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Uh, full disclosure, I actually shared this with Jaden yesterday. In the first part of my study this week, kind of even the first half, even though 14 verses is a little longer scope than I normally do, I was kind of wondering, I, I was thinking, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to say on Sunday morning because the authors covered most of this material before. And when I shared it with Jaden yesterday, it was out of the excitement because as the study continued, just the blessings and the meat and the wisdom that comes from the Word of God just certainly filled me up. And I hope that some of it spills over even to you this morning. Because what we see in this passage is a very purposeful repetition by the author to continue to drive home the absolute superiority of the person of Christ and the absolute superiority of the priesthood of Christ, of the new covenant, his ministry in the new covenant. He also continues to draw this huge contrast between the external and the internal, between the temporal and the eternal. And then what he does here in our passage, he especially focuses on the great contrast between the material and the spiritual and the superficial of the old versus the radical of the new. And beloved, as we approach this, what we want to do is we want to, as much as possible, not read this and study this and understand this as a modern Gentile or even a modern Hebrew believer, but rather read this and understand this as a 2,000-year-old Hebrew believer, because that was the original audience. As we look at this and we see the flow of God's self-revelation in history. Beloved, please follow as I read our passage, as I said, of verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9, but I'm going to pick up the last verse, verse 13 of chapter 8, in the reading now to set the stage for us. This is the word of God, Hebrews 8 and verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant." And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. 
that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, we should understand that the entire book of Hebrews is written to mark the move from the old to the new. To mark the move and to guide the move from the one to the other. And in this passage, he does precisely that. And what we'll see in these 14 verses are three markers guiding the move from the old to the new. Regulation, ritual, and reformation. The regulation and ritual of the old, which then transitions into the reformation of the new. And beloved, in the new covenant, this is part of the joy and blessing that we see jump out from this. In the new covenant, God doesn't just forgive sin and forget sin. He also cleanses the conscience. And this is something that man desperately needs. This is part of the emphasis in this passage, this new emphasis on the spiritual and the radical transformation that comes to the child of God, the son or daughter of the Most High God under the blessings of the new covenant. So let's look at this first marker guiding the transition, the move from the old to the new, namely regulation. And we understand that the old, the old covenant was divinely prescribed by God. And the new covenant is not the contradiction to the old covenant. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant. Also, the author of this magnificent book does not degrade, does not disparage the old covenant. Rather, he exalts the old covenant. And that's what he does in verses 1 through 5. Look at the beginning of verse 1, he writes, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Uh, there were detailed ordinances and prescriptions and guidance given by God for worship, given to Moses. And even when we think of the sanctuary, the holy place, when we think of that, how important is that? As modern Gentile believers, what does this really mean to me? Well, understanding that all of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, training, reproof, and correction. There are some 50 chapters in the Bible describing the sanctuary. 
sanctuary. So we can say it is important. Uh, Exodus chapter 25 through 40 is one long section describing the sanctuary. He says even the first covenant had regulations. Uh, This word regulations, it comes from the same root as the word righteous. Uh, The Apostle Paul uses this in Romans. For example, this word regulations is translated Romans 1.32 about the ordinance of God. Romans 5.16, the same word is translated as justification. Uh, The beautiful truth of God the just pardoning we the unjust. Or Romans 5 verse 18, an act of righteousness. So this is part of the regulations God had put in place. This is part of the exalted purpose of the old that God had even in its regulation. Look at verse 2, he continues, for there was a tabernacle prepared. This is the wilderness tent that God instructed the people of Israel through Moses to construct. That when, or should say after God delivered the nation of Israel, rescued and redeemed the nation of Israel from their 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he established this tabernacle, which was a wilderness tent which would be a place where God would come and meet with his people. Men of skill were instructed to build the tabernacle. Again, Exodus 25 through 40, other passages as well. We understand that this wilderness tent shrine reflected the excellence of God, reflected the holiness of God. And it's interesting here, in Hebrews chapter 9, the author uses the tabernacle rather than the temple. And I think the first reason he uses the tabernacle here rather than the temple, the temple, when the author wrote this, was still, the last temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And I think part of the reason why he uses the tabernacle here rather than the temple was to emphasize and drive home the temporary nature of it. To be sure, the temples were temporary. A few years after the writing, the existing temple would be destroyed. But the tabernacle being a mobile tent rather than a building demonstrated even more the temporary nature, the superficial nature, the material nature of the old, which is part of the intent and emphasis of the author here. We continue in verse 2, this tabernacle that's prepared, the one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So, With the tabernacle, there was a courtyard, and you would approach the tabernacle, a clean Israelite would come up with his offering to the east side of the tabernacle, through the courtyard, and then there would be a veil, and then only the priests would go into the holy place. And when they would enter into the holy place on the right, on the north side of the temple, there was a table of showbread. On the left side, on the south side, there was the candelabra, or excuse me, the uh, lampstand. The lampstand the menorah having the seven branches made out of solid gold. And then as the priest would go even further in, there would be an altar of incense. And then behind the altar of incense, there was a second veil. So there was a first veil, a curtain separating the courtyard and the holy place. And then there would be a second veil, a second curtain, which would separate the holy place from the holy of holies. This tabernacle was about 75 feet in length, about 15 feet in width, and 15 feet in height. 
Two-thirds of it was the holy place, the first part. And what the author brings out here was the lampstand and the table. The table of the showbread, of the sacred bread, was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It was a little less than four feet in length and a little wider than two feet in width. The sacred bread, 12 loaves of consecrated bread, of the bread of the presence, it's also called, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 3, he continues, And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. So he moves from the holy place, the high priest, and only the high priest, only once a year, would on the great day of atonement, would go into the Holy of Holies. Now, To understand this, in the Hebrew language, they don't have to express the superlative. They don't have the idea of best. They don't have good, better, and best. They don't have fast, faster, and fastest. If they want to express what we would call the best of the best, they say the fast of the fast. For example, the Lord of Lords is the Lord who is above all other lords. The king of kings is the king who is greater than all the other kings. And the holy of holies is the most holy place. And that is where we find ourselves. Now, when we think of the author using the tabernacle, both the tabernacle and the current temple that was extant in existence at the time of the writing consisted of a court and then an outer compartment and an inner compartment, the holy place and the holy of holies. As time went on, the courts would multiply, but the essence of both the tabernacle and the temple were these two compartments, the outer and the inner. And though the courts multiplied, they were the center, they were the focus. That is where the author focuses. Look at verse 4. He says, Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. So this golden altar of incense, as I said, it was in the holy place just before the curtain into the holy of holies. But the function of the altar of incense was inside the holy of holies. And on that one day when the high priest would go in, he would take a censer of the incense and that would accompany the high priest into the holy of holies. But the most important object, the most important piece of furniture for lack of of a better word in all of this list is the Ark of the Covenant. This was also made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold. This was also a little less than four feet in length and a little greater than two feet in width. And it symbolized God's presence in the midst of his people. The Ark of the Covenant was actually lost in 587 BC when the Chaldeans destroyed the temple, and they took the Ark of the Covenant away. They either destroyed it or it was taken away. So the Holy of Holies, the innermost compartment from 587 B.C. all the way to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was actually empty. And that's probably another reason why the author focuses on the tabernacle rather than the temple. But he continues in the rest of verse 4. In which, in the Ark of the Covenant, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. The golden jar holding the manna, that was a reminder to the nation of Israel of how God provided for them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, 
when you think of wilderness, I grew up in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And I remember initially reading the Bible, and my idea of the wilderness was like a beautiful you know, forest and, and streams and, and mountains. The wilderness of Israel, the wilderness of the Promised Land, was nothing like that. There were no trees, there were no streams, there was nothing but shale and dust and rock. And the manna was how God provided for over a million people for 40 years on a daily basis. And that was part of the intent of even this golden jar holding the manna. Even Aaron's rod, which budded, was another reminder that God is the one that brings life and God is the one that sustained his people during those 40 years of wilderness wandering. It was also a reminder that it was Aaron who was God's choice for the priesthood of the old covenant. And then the tables of the covenant, these were the two tables of the Ten Commandments. This was the reminder to the nation of the law of God, the ordinance of God, which was given to them for their good, was, was given to them as a guard, as a safeguard, as a protection, and was most importantly given to them to remind them and to remind us and tell us that we need a Savior. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So the mercy seat was the cover. So the Ark of the Covenant was the box, again, made out of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. But the mercy seat was a solid gold slab that was the cover of it. And on top of this, they had two cherubim, two angelic beings that were both facing inwards on the Ark of the Covenant with their wings overshadowing it. These are cherubim. These are the guardians of the way to God. You can think of Genesis 3.24. After Adam and Eve committed the sin and God banished them from the Garden of Eden, you read, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Or more to the point and the representation from the cherubim that are overshadowing the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Samuel 4.4 the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So even in the wandering wilderness, when God's favor was on the nation, the Shekinah glory would manifest itself in God's approval above the cherubim, above overshadowing the mercy seat, which was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting, the mercy seat here, the Greek word translated as mercy seat here is hilasterion. It only appears in one other place in the New Testament, in Romans 3.25, where it's translated as propitiation, where the Apostle Paul is describing the work of Christ and a propitiation, a hilasterion, a mercy seat in his blood through faith. And beloved, the propitiation, the propitiatory work of Christ is whereby his substitutionary death quenches the wrath of God. The righteous anger of God, where God told Adam and Eve, even in the Garden of Eden, that in the day that they would eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would most certainly die. Part of God's wrath, even that death, is what was poured out on Christ as your propitiation, as 
the measure of quenching the wrath of God. That's the picture that the author is bringing out here. And look at the rest of verse 5. He says, but, and this is amazing, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Really? I mean, that sounds like a lot of detail to me. That sounds like a lot of detail to me as a modern Gentile believer. But to a 2,000-year-old Hebrew believer, familiar with Exodus 25 through 40, familiar with the other uh, 34 chapters that I mentioned before on the sanctuary, this is not great detail. Beloved, the author does not go into greater detail because he wants to emphasize the substance of Christ's ministry rather than even these beautiful shadows of the regulations that are pointing to Christ. And so the human author exercises great reserve and restraint. There's no inclination for him to suck some fanciful typologies out of his thumb. He just wants to lay out the bare facts because the author understands that excessive attention to minor details would run the danger of obscuring the main thrust of his important teaching. Again, about the absolute superiority of the person of Christ and the absolute superiority of the priesthood of Christ. John Calvin said in this context, philosophizing beyond reasonable bounds as some do, is not only futile, but dangerous. That's why the author says we cannot go into greater details. Now, having said all of this, beloved, the main point of verses 1 through 5 of this regulation of the old is, again, the author does not degrade these objects. He dignifies them and shows how they represent deeper realities. He never disparages the lesser, even as we've been going through Hebrews, the lesser prophets, the lesser angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, the old covenant. He never disparages or degrades these. Rather, he exalts them because the more legitimately the old is exalted, the greater the exaltation of the superior son, of Lord Jesus, of Christ the Messiah. God did give specific, very clear guidelines to be followed with very serious consequences. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 10. So Aaron was God's choice for the priesthood. Aaron had two sons that did not obey God. They did not follow the very clear, very specific, very straightforward guidelines that God had given them. And we read of this in Leviticus chapter 10 in verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Beloved, the point here is, again, God gave very specific guidelines, instruction, and regulation. The nation of Israel, the worshipers of God, weren't freelance worshipers. 
Now, us as New Testament believers, Gentile or Jew, we also are not freelance worshipers. By God's grace and mercy, we don't have the, anywhere near the level of detail of instruction and specific guidance that needs to be followed the way the old covenant people of God did. But it is still serious. For example, we know that when we approach, for example, the communion table, God says that we must examine ourselves carefully lest we drink judgment to ourselves if we take of the communion in an unworthy fashion. So, beloved, the regulations of the old and even the regulations of the new, we're not freelance worshipers. God instructs us how to do these things. There's a second marker guiding the move from the old to the new, and that is the ritual of the old. And we see this in verses 6 through the author moves from the accoutrements of the old to the actions of the old. And what we see in these verses are three limitations of the old. There's restricted access. There is the limitation of partial cleansing. And then finally, there's the, the limitation of limited pardon, all of which reminds us back to man's central problem from even the Garden of Eden is that sinful man, sinful woman, can't approach a holy God unless God provides some way. And that is what he brings out here. Look at verse 6. He says, Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. The outer tabernacle, that would be the holy place. And you see, the priests, only the priests could go in to the holy place. And there were two daily tasks that the priests had and one weekly task. So the daily task, they would have to tend to the lampstand. The lampstand had olive oil, which through a siphoning mechanism would go up and feed the, the little uh, candles and the lights, and the priests would have to go in on a daily basis to ensure that the lampstand was lit. They would also go in on a daily basis to light the incense. And actually, what happened was, over time, the number of priests multiplied to the point that they would have to cast lots to pick a priest to go in for the blessed responsibility of once in his lifetime of lighting the incense. So, for example, there was a priest named Zacharias that we meet in Luke chapter 1 who became the father of John the forerunner, John the baptizer. And in Luke 1 verse 9, you'll read these words. According to the custom of the priestly office, he, Zacharias, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That's the same divine worship that the author of Hebrews is bringing out here. So there are those two daily responsibilities, but there is also a weekly responsibility. On the Sabbath day, the priest would have to go in, a priest would have to go in and change the 12 loaves of the sacred bread. So two daily, one weekly. Then now as we move to verse 7, he brings out the yearly responsibility, a yearly action on the great day of atonement. Verse 7, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year. The second tabernacle, the second tent, the second compartment, the holy of holies. So only priests went into the outer sanctuary, only the high priest went into the inner sanctuary, only once a year. And look at what it says in the middle of verse 7 not without taking blood. 
Again, this is part of the regulation and the ritual God put in place by which man is reminded that it is a sinful man who is approaching the holy God. And the blood of the atonement was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkled or even gushed by the high priest to make atonement for himself and for the people for the previous year. So, not without taking blood, finishing off verse 7, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So he would take the blood of a bull for himself, and he would take the blood of a goat, a scapegoat for the people, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. We don't have... Time to go there now, but I commend to you Numbers 15, verses 27 through 31. This is where God brings out the regulation and the ritual of sins committed in ignorance, sins committed unknowingly, versus sins that were committed in abject, utter defiance of God. Numbers 15, 27 through 31. But the point, beloved, here is the high priest's and even on behalf of the people, are safeguarded by the sacrificial blood. And one more point around this mercy seat, this helosterian that was a picture of the quenching of God's wrath. For the author of Hebrews, he's referring to the old. But the counterpart in the mind of the author of Hebrews that he's already introduced to us back in chapter 4 for the new covenant believer is the throne of grace. Do you remember chapter 4, verse 16? The author says, Let us therefore draw near with fear and trepidation. No, no, no. He says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence. Not confidence in self, confidence in the once for all sacrifice of our perfect high priest. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace and help in time of need. So whereas the entire nation of Israel could only on one time in the year be represented by one man going to the mercy seat, under the new covenant, all of us are charged and blessed. This is one of the most beautiful of those 10,000 charms that we sang of before. We approach the throne of grace daily, regularly, hourly, minute by minute that we may find grace and help in time of need. So there was restricted access in the old. The second limitation of the old is partial cleansing. And we begin in verse 8 with these beautiful words. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. This is another reminder where the author of Hebrews, again, is exalting the old. He's exalting what we would call the Old Testament, <clears throat> the Bible, those 16 chapters, Exodus 25 through 40, all the chapters, every, all the regulations that God gives in the Bible, God is the author of those. Moses wrote the first five books. He's the human author, but it is the Holy Spirit who is the divine author of the word of God. And we saw that before in chapter 3, verse 7, after the author had quoted a psalm from David in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, just as the Holy Spirit says. So David wrote the psalm, the Holy Spirit wrote the psalm. This is what the Holy Spirit here, chapter 9, verse 8, is signifying. And what we may ask is the Holy Spirit signifying here? What is he teaching here? 
He's teaching that even though the old is exalted, it is limited, it is imperfect, it's temporary. That's why he says the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. A symbol, the present time here, actually was still part of in this transitional period while the temple was still standing. That was the Old Testament period, while the temple is still standing. In fact, the present tense verbs the author uses in this section on the ritual is similar to what we've seen elsewhere in the letter, and that is, again, another indicator that this was written before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But he says it's a symbol for the present time, symbol, a parabole, from which we get the word parable, a placing of one thing by the side of another, a comparison, an analogy. It is a spiritual truth being communicated by a physical reality. And what the author is saying is all the regulations, the ritual, those physical illustrations are communicating a deeper spiritual truth about the ministry of Christ. It's an illustration of what's real. It's a signpost direct, directing the worshiper to the all-sufficient provision that God intended from the beginning. Certainly on this side of the life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and coronation of Jesus Christ, certainly on this side, but even on that side for the old covenant believer, it was a signpost to the all-sufficient provision that God intended again from the beginning. Middle of verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. This is <clears throat> the epicenter of the limitation of the partial cleansing. Man's conscience, beloved, your conscience is your barometer of your moral sensitivity. This is the very heart of man's being, of woman's being. Creation and conscience. Uh, we know the Apostle Paul, for example. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul lets us know that all human beings, the atheists, the agnostics, people that have never heard the gospel, all human beings know that God exists by virtue of his beautiful creation and by virtue of the conscience. And all of us know that we are creatures made in the image of God the imago dei, and as such, this is where the conscience comes in, every man, woman, and child, regardless of what they may say, know that they are creatures that will give an account to their creator, God. And back here in Hebrews 9, 9, this tells us that the true barrier, the true wall of separation between sinful man and a holy God is not a material veil. It is the inner conscience. It's the guilt that we bear by virtue of our sin. And the Old Covenant can't perfect the conscience. The Old Covenant can't plumb the depths and change the heart. It can't bring newness of life. And it was never intended by God to do that. Having said this, this doesn't mean that no Old Testament believer ever 
had or attained a clean conscience. But an Old Testament believing man or woman could get a clean conscience not by the sacrifice of the animals per se. It was then, and it is always the case, it's the result of the Spirit of God acting in the faith of the believing Israelite in that case. An example of this is David's true repentance in Psalm 51. He had a clean conscience by virtue even after his horrific sins of adultery and murder. There were still consequences to be borne out, but he did have a clean conscience. So the limitation of the old was there was a restricted access, there was partial cleansing, finally there was limited pardon. You see, there was cleansing available, but it was ceremonial cleansing, not conscience cleansing. Look at verse 10. Since they relate only, the ritual, the regulations, only relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, for the flesh, for the material, the food and drink kosher dietary rules, the washings, the priests would, when the priests would go into the holy place, there was a labor outside that they had to wash their hands, they had to wash their feet, because the sacrificial system was a bloody system. The high priest, on that one great day of atonement, when he would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies, he also had to wash. Leviticus 16.4, he shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. So there were prescribed washings for the priests, for the high priests, and for other people on special occasions. Lepers had specific ceremonial washings they had to undergo. When someone had certain bodily discharges, there were washings they had to do. If a Israelite man or woman touched a dead body or went into the room of a dead body, there was a specific cleansing washing put in place. And all of these, beloved, were given by God for the benefit and the shalom, for the well-being of the people, but they didn't cleanse the soul. They were part of the atonement that would hold back the wrath of God, but they don't perfect the conscience, is what we read in our text. And the Old Covenant high priest on the great day of atonement, when he would make atonement, it was only for the past year. And the second, the minute he left the Holy of Holies, his work had nothing to do with that minute or going forward. In contrast to Jesus, his once-for-all sacrifice atoned perfectly, completely for past sins, present sins, and even future sins of his children, of you and of me. All of these, look at verse 10 at the end, were imposed excuse me, until a time of reformation, until a time of setting things straight, a time of what's restoring, a time of restoring what's out of line. The Greek word translated as reformation, Hippocrates used it to describe setting straight a broken arm. This, the point here the author brings here is this is a complete reformation, a complete renovation, a complete restructuring of religion. And what time period is he talking about here? If you're a student of church history, you might think, well, is he talking about the 16th century? Is this Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli? 
No, he's not talking about that. That's not the Reformation he's talking about. In fact, the author has already defined it for us back in chapter 8. When in chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, he gives that long quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31 of Jeremiah's prophecy and promise of the new covenant. That is the time of Reformation. You see, before that, the passion and death of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 and elsewhere, that was promised. His once-for-all sacrifice was promised on this side of Christ's ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, coronation. His once-for-all sacrifice now is performed and passed. And even Old Testament, Old Covenant believers understood this at some level. Jesus, when he was talking to the scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 56, speaking of Father Abraham, Jesus told them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In a couple chapters, we'll get to the great Hall of Faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, from Adam and Enoch and Abraham, Moses, all the way through all the Old Covenant, Old Testament believers looked forward in faith to the justifying sacrifice. You and I, on this side of the equation, we look back in faith to the same justifying sacrifice, Father Abraham and Moses and all the Old Covenant, Abigail, all the Old Covenant believers look forward in faith. And by the way, we may at some level smile at these 2,000-year-old practices, but even in modern-day New Testament church, we must be careful, beloved, to not elevate our traditions to the level of law and enforce them rigidly. You see, even as new creatures in Christ Jesus, while we're in these bodies of death, we have an innate tendency to become unbending with our traditions. Therefore, we must be very careful to not stress external observances, even around a worship service, at the expense of the internal attitude. That's where true worship in spirit and truth comes from. So, we see the markers of the regulation and ritual of the old. The third and final marker in verses 11 through 14 is the reformation of the new, that guides our move from the old to the new. And this answers the question, what am I to do with my guilt? Uh, modern world says, oh, don't be guilty. You just need to love yourself more. You need to forgive yourself. You need to esteem yourself more. No, beloved, guilt is a mercy from God to all mankind. It's like fear of fire. It's a break, a guardrail, a protector. And what am I to do, though, with this guilt? Where is the individual to go who is haunted by remorse, who is driven by failure? Can anything be done for a remorseful sinner who wants to be cleansed in his or her conscience from the guilt and weight of their sin? And beloved, this is where God must act. I can't escape this world of sin in which I'm trapped. I can't break free unless God does something. That's why I look at verse 11. The text, New American Standard, says, but when Christ. The original language, two words, but Christ. A mighty adversative, like 
but God in Ephesians 3, 4. These two monosyllables that capture the introduction of the entire gospel message. Before these two words, but Christ, there is no hope. There is no rescue. There is no redemption. With these two words, again, dear friend, you have the introduction into the entire good news gospel message that there is a way of escape from the burden of the guilt of sin. The verse continues, But Christ, when he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, what he's saying here is the time of reformation has arrived. The good things have both come and are coming. We have a foretaste of heaven on earth, of our newness in life. And there is a future fulfillment. This is the already and the not yet. This is the two comings of Christ. The first coming, which is already accomplished. The second one is still coming. The good things to come, verse 11, continuing. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. This is further contrast between the apparent and the real, between that which was built by man, even at the instruction of God, and that which was built by God, of the material and the spiritual, of the superficial and the radical. Remember what the author said back in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the main point, the main point, chapter 8, verse 1, in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Beloved, what the author is telling you and me in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and here in chapter 9, verse 11, is this heavenly tabernacle gives free access to God. There is no longer a veil separating you from God. Verse 12, he continues under this great reformation of the new, and not through the blood of goats and calves, the blood of goats for the sins of the people, of the cows for the sins of the priests, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, eternal ransom, eternal deliverance, eternal freedom, eternal emancipation, your eternal emancipation from the fetters and bonds of your sin and the fetters and bonds of your will and the fetters and bonds of being a child of Satan, but instead now being adopted into the family of the Most High God as a daughter, as a son. Beloved, he sacrificed himself. Jesus sacrificed himself in the courtyard of this world to secure your eternal redemption, ransom, payment, emancipation, freedom. Verse 13, 4, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. We've already covered the blood of goats and bulls, but he brings in the ashes of a heifer. And this was part of one of the regulatory washings that God had given under the old covenant. This is the one where if a person touched a dead body 
or went into a room where there was a dead body. The nation of Israel was supposed to take a red heifer without blemish that had never borne the yoke and to sacrifice it and burn it down to ashes, take the ashes and mix with water. And so what they would do is when somebody became ceremonially defiled by virtue of touching a dead body, they would have that water sprinkled upon them and they would become ceremonially cleansed. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 19. So that was part of the old ritual where they could become ceremonial clean, but again, it did nothing and it could not cleanse the inner man or the conscience. That's why, now look at verse 14, the final great contrast. How much more will the blood of Christ, how much more, this is an author's favorite language. We see this for the first time in this form here, 914. You'll see it again in chapter 10, another time in chapter 11, three times in chapter 12. Understand this, the comparison here, when he says how much more, it's not a relative comparison. It's an infinite comparison. Not from the bad to the good, it's from the good, from the God-ordained to the good of good, (laughs) the best of the best. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Uh, The animals could be physically without blemish. Jesus Christ was morally and spiritually without blemish. He was and is the perfect high priest. He was and is the perfect sacrifice. And beloved, dear friend, only a sacrifice completely free from the contagion of sin can cleanse you from your contagion of sin. This is the reformation of the sinner. This is the renovation, the regeneration of the sinful man or the sinful woman. And he says, how much more will this, at the end of verse 14, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Dead works, works that are dead in their origin, works that are accompanied by death and works that end in death. But The living God is where it begins, and the living God is where it ends. Another great quote from Calvin, he said, We're not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. Beloved, dear friend, God, again, doesn't just forgive sins. He doesn't just forget sins. He cleanses your conscience in Christ with the washing of the water of his word. The old was external, temporary, and superficial. The new is internal, eternal, and it is radical. Even now, even before we enter into the perfect glorification with our Father in heaven. The 6th century Blind church father Hervius said this, If the shadow purifies the flesh, how much more does the truth purify the soul? Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, that you are holy and righteous. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that there is punishment for sin, not because we rejoice in the punishment of sinners, not because we want to be punished, 
but because we know it exalts your name. It elevates your righteousness. Thank you for providing a way of escape. Thank you for the newness in life, for the washing of the regeneration of the word of God in our hearts and minds. And thank you, Lord, that we can, by your grace and mercy, have cleansed consciences so we can sleep well at night, so that we can do our jobs and we can minister to our family and our co-workers and even have fun bringing you glory, doing all things for your glory and for your honor, for our eternal joy and for the blessing of those around us. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we remember these things. And dear God, anyone that is here this morning or listening later that is not trusting in you for their salvation, God, let them come to you. Let them understand that there is forgiveness. There is adoption. There is redemption and that you would cleanse their conscience when they know that you paid the price for them by placing their faith and trust in you and in you alone. It's for your glory and for your honor that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.